to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about a Democrat-aligned law firm in North Carolina kicking the Green Party off the ballot in that state. Also going to be discussing a political update in Haiti uh, regarding uh, the United Nations mandate. Also going to be uh, touching on the issue of inflation in the United States as that continues to worsen. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, yesterday's January 6th hearings featured testimony from members of the right-wing extremist groups involved in the fascist attack on the Capitol on that day. The point of the hearing yesterday seemed to be to connect these groups and other right-wing extremists like Ali Alexander, Tim Poole, Alex Jones, and others to prior knowledge of Trump's plan to march on the Capitol to stop the certification of the Electoral College votes. It sure did seem odd that those people took to their social media platforms after Trump tweeted, quote, big protest in D.C. on January 6th, be there, will be wild, end quote, at 1.42 a.m. on December 19th, 2020. And they telegraphed what several video clips of them seemed to show that they all had some kind of knowledge of what was to come. Or were they merely projecting what they hoped would happen, what they wanted to happen, what they wanted to do? And uh, after they received that green light from Trump's tweet to come to D.C. to protest the certification of the election, it's hard to say. And I don't think the committee has to date proven that any of those people had direct insider knowledge of Trump's plans for January 6th. And I have to tell you that at this point, I don't even care. I don't care if these people received detailed instructions from Trump via FedEx the week before the attack. I don't care if they had him in their homes and he drew maps for them in crayon. We all know that this man incited this riot, and it's a ridiculous farce that these televised hearings are being conducted to convince the American public of the of the obvious but without any certainty of the evidence being enough to charge, indict, and ultimately convict Donald Trump of anything. Nearly two years later, and all the Democrats have really done is televised these hearings to make the case to the American people that we need to vote for Democrats to keep Trump or any of his acolytes from gaining power again, even as some of his acolytes and a few accomplices to January 6th sit in Congress and throughout the government in various appointed positions today. Rather, what I think is important from yesterday's hearing is something that wasn't really raised, and that is how the mob that showed up on January 6th organized. Jason Van Tattenhove of the Florida-based right-wing extremist group Oath Keepers testified that he spent around three years promoting the group before growing concerned with the growing white nationalism and other straight-up racists in the group. He said he finally left after hearing senior Oath Keepers deny the Holocaust. But more importantly, Van Totenhove said 
that even though the Oath Keepers is really a vanity project for Stuart Rhodes, which is the group's leader who's in jail on charges of seditious conspiracy related to January 6th, who he said envisions himself as a powerful paramilitary leader, but who in reality doesn't command a lot of actual forces. Tottenhove said the group is and continues to be dangerous because of its ability to widely disseminate violent messaging and radicalize followers. And he said that thinly veiled tweets like Trump's essentially gave the nod to Rhodes and his ilk that it was time for action. Even further, testimony from yesterday's hearing revealed that the formerly unrelated extremist groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and the Three Percenters, united to support Trump on January 6th. And this is the part that is fascinating to me. How do organizations like these do so well at disseminating information and radicalizing people, even as the information they're disseminating is based on lies and they are radicalizing hate? And how do they so easily come together to unite around a common goal to coordinate and carry out what look to me like very intricate plans in a disciplined manner, even amid the chaos of a riot, to achieve a singular goal, even if those plans were to commit violence and that goal was to install their furor for another presidential term that he actually did not win? Why is it that we leftists put out a rallying cry for people to defend people's rights from being eviscerated, to protect the marginalized, to demand human rights for all, to fight for socialism for all of our survival, rather than unite in public to further that fight, even as we might have to struggle among ourselves and even internally over issues that we might not agree on, we have public fallouts with people and organizations. It baffles me that in this country, leftist, working class, indigenous, black and poor led and focused movements have been relentlessly attacked and weakened for decades by infiltrating, sowing internal division, pitting groups against each other, done by the state that arrests and imprisons people while the media discredits their organizations and movements, while the right is happily used to carry out some of the overt violence against those people and groups while they sign simultaneously adopt and seemingly perfect the tactics we used and were once successful with, grassroots organizing and political education through popular propaganda to accelerate the entrenchment of fascism in this country. And this is something that Republicans and the pro-cop, pro-militarism, pro-war Democrats are implicated in, especially today, as the Democrats are also using these hearings to justify their continued support for giving more money to the police and the military because we got to stop the fascists, they're going to claim, but those forces will be used against the left again instead, while also crying poverty for people's programs. Part of the reason for this is obviously that the right has always had the power and the weight of the government and the support of both political parties behind it in one way or another. But there's a part of this phenomenon that I think falls squarely into what we always talk about on this show, the need for us on the left to organize, organize, organize around people-centered human rights and around shaping a government in this country that recognizes and protects 
human rights, and human beings above all else. That connects every issue every one of us on the left is out here fighting for, but doing so in our small and tragically disconnected silos. The violent, racist, neo-fascist, extremist right have learned how to fight together as brothers, as they learned a lot of those tactics from us. It's past due time for us on the left to take our strategies back and learn to fight together so we can not only live, but create a better life and country than any politician is providing for us today, and certainly better than anything the right is fighting for. Like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will all perish together as fools. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Greg Palace, author of several New York Times bestsellers, including The Best Democracy Money Can Buy and investigative reporter whose work you can find at gregpalace.com. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, glad to be with you again. Absolutely. And Greg, uh, here recently, we've seen a uh, a Democratic-aligned law firm in uh, North Carolina actually move to quick the, kick the Green Party of that state off of uh, the ballot. And I was hoping you could help us understand exactly what uh, uh, is happening here and why the Democrats would do this, as I don't think it's the first time we've seen such a move. Well, I mean, the Democratic Party uh, is uh, always panicked about the Green Party. As you know, Hillary Clinton decided to blame her loss on on Jill Stein. Uh, So, you know, they've uh, they can never look to themselves for their issues. And um, so they're using, you know, the there's laws, some of which are not completely crazy, that says you have to have a minimum number of voters or a minimum number of signatures to get on a ballot. And, you know, if you have enough money and enough time to challenge signatures, uh, you can usually knock people off a ballot. Uh, uh, So that's what's happening. I mean, the one thing, of course, the Green Party needs to learn how to start organizing if it's going to build a base to get this, these minimum numbers. But yeah, it's, it's always, it's, it's a tussle. In fact, Barack Obama became state Senator uh, when uh, he basically challenged his other opponents signatures to get on a ballot in Illinois. And so we ran unopposed. And uh, so it's an old political trick, nothing new under the sun. Yeah, the U.S. Uh, Green Party's Senate candidate will actually, who will now be unable to get on the ballot, uh, said that the Democratic National a senatorial campaign committee, the Elias Law Group, the North Carolina Democratic Party were less concerned with exposing fraud than they were with keeping uh, uh, their, their candidate off the ballot to protect Beasley's vote share. And he said they used dishonest tactics to get the job done. What were the dishonest tactics that the, he was alleging uh, the uh, law firm for the North Carolina Democratic Party used? 
Well, uh, I have to say that the North, that this Mark Elias firm is a is a very good firm that's fought very hard uh, against vote suppression tactics. Um, but they do work for the Democratic Party, and their and still their principal job is get Democrats elected. Um, so I, I don't know what I don't know if they're about any illegal actions. I haven't read that. If there are some, um, I don't know uh, what what he's specifically alleging of uh, the Green Party. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things, again, there are limits to the number of parties you'll have on the ballot or candidates. They do have to make a minimum number of signatures or the party has to have had a track record of getting voters. That's democracy. And, um, you know, it's uh, – there's a question about whether the candidate has the right to be on the ballot or not. That's a that's a good debate. Should there be a minimum? And it's an old trick, which I don't like anyone using. I remember when I was uh, working with the state of New York, and you know, uh, I was uh, appointed by a Democratic politico, and we were told to go in and and go through signatures of a uh, dissident candidate and get them off the ballot. Uh, by getting the, uh, you know, when, you know, you'll often see people at supermarkets saying, you know, please sign to put this candidate on the ballot. You don't have to vote for them. So, um, you know, I'm not crazy about the process. I don't think it's positive. I would rather see something more open in the Democratic Party instead of spending its time and money. And I can tell you the Elias firm is very, very expensive. It would be very nice to see the Democratic Party do something like um, just keep Elias on the issue of vote suppression, which is he's been very good at because obviously Democratic Party does not like to see – well, they have a newfound interest suddenly. They've suddenly recognized that vote suppression costs them votes, and I'm glad that they've come to that realization. But they should stop uh, uh, making the Green Party the bugaboo. Uh, you know, both sides should figure out how to win over voters. The Green Party has to organize – and the Democrats have to um, open up, uh, uh, have to figure out how to spend their time protecting their voters instead of knocking off someone else's voters. Yeah, and speaking of voter suppression, Greg, I mean, uh, where do you see that issue as it sits now in the United States? I mean, it seemed at least at some point that Democrats uh, were at least, you know, talking about uh, addressing the issue. But I mean, what kind of movement have we seen or around that here recently? Well, I've been doing – I just came back from a month of investigating in Georgia where they're back to good old games like uh, they have a new system of vigilante challengers where any any voter in Georgia – are you ready for this? – can challenge any number of other voters in Georgia. I say unlimited. And if you go to gregpowell.com, you'll see uh, um, a little trailer of some of what we've discovered, including the uh, vigilante, a woman running for vice chair of the Republican Party in Georgia who's knocked off – 32,000 African-American voters, and uh, mostly African-American voters, 32,000 that she has challenged. Just one woman, too many names to even print out, so she handed a thumb drive, said, don't let these people vote. Um, and that's gotten really no national attention. I mean, so vote suppression, look, I mean, we have to, when we talk about the Democrats in North Carolina trying to muscle out the Green Party, and you see uh, horrendous uh, moves to stop the African-American and youth vote in Georgia, an attack on a new level. And by the way, the Elias firm has been on this matter in Georgia, finally. It took the Democratic Party decades to realize they have to protect black voters, but 
they are there. But, you know, we have to put this in context. I mean, you look at uh, right now we've got, uh, you know, Alex, uh, Alexei Navalny in prison in Russia, who's the opponent to uh, Putin. They try to poison him and kill him. You had Boris Nemtsov with a bullet who ran against uh, Putin with a bullet to the back of the head. You know, so let's balance out what we mean by attacks on democracy. In America, we're discussing, you know, how we protect what democracy we have. And it's it's shameful that in Georgia we still have Jim Crow tactics, which were first used in 1946 in Georgia. For example, the governor of Georgia in 46, who is actually a candidate of the Ku Klux Klan, Eugene Talmadge, he was told... He he told the guys in white sheets, "Well, fill out in you know fill out these mimeo sheets with the names of a black person on them, and challenge their right to vote." Well, now we've taken Jim Crow into cyberspace. Before, you used to have some Klan member challenge one or two or three black people's votes. Now we have one GOP operative with computers challenging thirty-two thousand. One, another one challenging four thousand, including the. Um, uh, one of the people uh, that I've met who've been challenged is the African-American, um, the U.S. Army's expert on uh, future warfare weapons. In fact, he just uh, designed a, a weapon for uh, to defend Ukraine from the invasion. And um, they have challenged this black man's vote. He's the guy who spent his life uh, to protect the United States as a, in career military. And this is, you know, a man that they have challenged his right to vote because they said he didn't live in Georgia because he was assigned to uh, a base in California. Well, yeah. And uh, I was just wondering, I mean, based on what you're seeing in uh, uh, Georgia, where I know you, you've done a lot of work and has been one of the main sites for uh, voter suppression that we've seen, at least recently here in the United States. I mean, what do you think that could portend for the uh, 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 midterms that are coming up a little later this year? I mean, it seems that the Democrats may be in, in kind of a, a rough spot, given the uh, uh, low approval ratings of Joe Biden and things like this. And as it uh, you know, just doesn't seem like uh, uh, there's a strong feeling from the electorate uh, about the Democrats in terms of what they've actually been able to achieve. And so, I mean, with, with the other sort of intertwining uh, issues uh, facing our, our moment, I mean, do you see voter suppression potentially playing a role there as well? Understanding, of course, that we don't have a crystal ball, but just uh, how do you see that potentially being a factor? I don't think that that Biden will be a factor in the big race in Georgia, for example. That's going to be a race totally about um, um, issues in Georgia. So, for example, uh, uh, the you know, as you know, Donald Trump doesn't like the current governor, Republican governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, and Stacey Abrams, who was cheated out. There are stolen elections in America. And um, Stacey Abrams was absolutely st- had her election stolen in 2018 against Brian Kemp. He knocked off 340,000 people, most of them uh, black and young people, in other words, Democrats. He literally illegally knocked off 340,000 people, including I was there at the polls, uh, Martin Luther King's um, cousin, 92-year-old cousin. She was blocked from voting from your 50th year of voting. And so the the issue in Georgia will simply be turnout 
and uh, and whether these vote suppression tricks of the, of the GOP can can block enough voters of color and young people to uh, stay in power. And I don't think Biden's approval rating will have much to do with these battles. I've been down in these battleground states, and they don't, they're not really they they are not really national. Um, and um, you know, in Arizona, it may be more national because there was the issue of. Um, uh, you have a Trump chosen candidate in Arizona, and um, uh, you know he lost that election in 2020 by just a few thousand votes. And uh, I, you know, so they're running against um, uh, the incumbent Democrat. So, but I don't think for the most part these are going to be national issues. I mean, you know, let's well, yeah. I mean, I assume that high inflation caused by the, the war in Ukraine. Really, it's an oil-driven inflation is going to um, – that's going to hurt Democrats because they just happen to be in the line of fire while that's happening. But uh, I think that in the key state of Georgia, which will determine the U.S. Senate, um, it won't be a national race. And how have you seen the organizing uh, in these states around voting issues as, you know, people certainly are aware of uh, the, you know, lack of, of urgency from the Democratic Party in response to the continued attacks on voting rights uh, that the Republican Party uh, continues to carry out? Well, as you know, we've had a sluggish Justice Department uh, they are taking actions against the state of Georgia, Arizona, Texas, but it's um, not wide and it's not deep. Uh, the Democratic Party, you mentioned the, the Elias firm, which is attacking the Green Party in North Carolina. They've actually finally started, uh, they've been hired and they've gone into Georgia and other states and they've done a, a good job. But again, it's not as aggressive or as strong as it needs to be. But I think finally the Democratic Party is learning that they have to do something to protect voters of color if, um, because we're actually going in reverse on voting rights in America. I've been following this issue for 20 years for The Guardian, Rolling Stone, and others, and we are definitely going backwards. And, and of course, there's no protection from the Supreme Court. So um, should the Democrats do more? Absolutely. But you know what? I go to places like Georgia. And I work with uh, Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter. Next week, uh, I will be uh, uh, speaker at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, convention. Uh, usually it's in Atlanta, but it will be virtual, so anyone can plug in and listen to uh, the SCLC convention on the 22nd of July. And these people are not waiting for the Democratic Party to do anything. They are acting these are grassroots groups that aren't waiting for the Democratic Party because they'd be waiting a very long time. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Greg, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And today we're having a political update for Haiti, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Jamima Pierre, uh, Haiti America's coordinator for the Black Alliance for Peace. Dr. Pierre, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And doctor, as demonstrations continue in Haiti, protesting of fuel shortages, uh, the country also recently marked a year since the assassination of then uh, President Jovenel Moise. And the uh, situation, of course, uh, certainly didn't improve uh, the political crisis that had already been happening in the country uh, for some time at that point. And uh, of course, now uh, uh, Haiti under the Interim leadership of one uh, Dr. Ariel Henry. And so uh, this is a broad question, Dr. Pierre, but I'm just sort of wondering your estimation of conditions uh, inside Haiti and how they've sort of developed in the year uh, since Moise's assassination and what do you think it may mean for the politics of the country moving forward? Yeah, well, in the year since the assassination, what we've realized, what we've recognize is that um, Haiti's sovereignty has been completely snuffed. And if you re- if your listeners will remember is that, you know, Moise, before he was assassinated, was highly unpopular. And the only thing holding him in power was the U.S. government and the core group um, and, and the U.N. Uh, in particular. And once the assassination happened, the, uh, Ariel Henry, who was designated prime minister right before Moise was killed, but then never really um, never assumed the position was that he uh, he was then put in place by the U.S. and the the U.N. office and the core group. And so we have uh, a supposed leader that has not been elected, has not been voted on. No Haitian has any access to. And and which is and basically Haiti is a de facto colony of the U.S. and the West at this point, And they're making all kinds of decisions. The other thing about this is that there's been no movement on resolving the assassination, right? And so, you know, uh, the, what the U.S. did, the FBI, the U.S. FBI went to Moise's house the day of the assassination and took all the evidence. Um, there have been a few people that have been brought to the U.S. for um, trial. Um, and, and we have to also wonder about the jurisdiction of the U.S. there to be able to um, go ahead and, 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 and bring people in, um, the fall guys for this murder. And, and so the U.S. have put people, a couple of people in prison, but the majority of the people, the financiers of this assassination are still, as we know, living in Miami or living in um, Turkey. There's one guy that was caught on, in Turkey, but then released recently. Um, and so the masterminds of the assassination are still around. They're still U.S. citizens, some of them. Um, and, and so there's no justice. And then you have a U- the U.N. running Haiti. And so with no le- with no legitimate um, presidency, no legitimate government in Haiti, hardly any elected officials, what you have is a state with no control except for that outside control. And that's where we are. And it's, it's been a mess. But that's and I and for me, I think that was the intention. The intention was to turn Haiti into this un- supposedly ungovernable space where it looks like Negroes can't control themselves. Yeah. And even though, you know, you you mentioned, Dr. Pierre, that, you know, Haiti doesn't have a functioning government, but there is a prime minister, and that is uh, Ariel Henry, who promised to create a new provisional electoral council. Uh, That hasn't happened. There hasn't been a parliament. I mean, what is his role, particularly since he was actually, uh, and I think continues to be, a key figure in possibly being involved in the assassination of Moise? 
Exactly. He is explicitly implicated um, in the assassination of Moise. And, 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 you know, I, and I have to say, because Haitian civil society, there have been many groups um, um, that have come together to, to, they put, to put forward a, 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 a way to move ahead, you know, after the assassination. So there was this, there, there's several accords. One of them that most people um, know is the Montana Accord, where um, a groups of civil society, a lot of groups came together and said, okay, this is a plan we have as a two-year transition, where we would have a transition council, and then we would call for elections. Um, Henri did not want that, nor did the U.S., right? Because Henri wants to change the Constitution, um, which is what Moïse wanted, that extended the power of, 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 of the executive. And Henri never really tried to talk to the Montana court, and the U.S. Um, and the Western rulers of Haiti don't want the Montana court. So even though the Montana court, a lot of them are, you know, these bourgeois opposition, basically gave in, cave in, tried to meet with Henri, that's really at a standstill right now. And so what, what we have is really, Henri is not a leader of Haiti. Henri is the puppet that is put in place um, and being and is being run around by the puppet masters, the puppeteer, puppeteers. And 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 he's just a figurehead um, to make it seem like Haiti isn't, you know, has control of its sovereignty. And, and that's not the case. And Haitians know this. Right. And, you know, if if and, and which is why I think the violence is also has ramped up. And I think the violence is is coordinated um, by the elite to make things seem so dire that we continue to have foreign control. Yeah, and another issue I wanted to touch on, uh, Dr. Pierre, actually today, the United Nations Security Council is set to vote on <clears throat> whether to extend uh, the mandate of the United Nations uh, Integrated Office in Haiti, or the B-I-N-U-H. And I was hoping you could sort of describe, you know, just what that force is and what it will mean for the country if it is indeed extended. <laughs> it just means more violence. I, I have People have to know that as far as we are concerned at the Black Alliance for Peace and me in, uh, personally, is that Haiti is under occupation. And um, it's been, uh, there's been a presence of, of foreign occupation in Haiti since 2004, where the U.S., France, and Canada led a coup d'etat against the democratically elected president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, and sent him to Africa. After that, this was under George W. Bush. And, you know, I've repeated this story over and over again, right, because I think people need to know it, because 2004, then the U.N., with France and the U.S. and the Security Council pushing for this, sent a so-called Chapter 7 peacekeeping court, um, force. And peacekeeping is a misnomer be of the way that the way, because of the way that these soldiers um, brutalized the Haitian community, you know, from shooting, you know, shooting into the, the, the dis distressed areas, bringing cholera into the country that killed 50 to, uh, 50, um, 10 to 50,000 people, if not more, um, the, the sexual violence against the Haitian community. And this, uh, this occupation has been, was there since 2004. Well, you know, any, and at any point, there was like 12,000 military troops and police stationed in Haiti, foreign military troops in this tiny country and thousands of civ civilian personnel. And so what happened was Haitians hate uh, the UN military control. And so in 2017, they basically drew down some parts of this, you know, the, the, the overt military force that, that the UN peacekeeping mission represented and created a, they call us a, a smaller and more nimble office, which is the UN integrated office. Um, the, the acronym is BINU, B-I-N-U-H. Um, which, but still, you know, with Helen Alim, the, uh, this white lady, um, still controlling Haiti. So the UN occupation is still there. It's just a smaller force, but they make all the decisions. In fact, you know, today they're, they're voting to extend this 
and who's going to speak on behalf of Haiti? This, the UN office. There's, there's no Haitian representation. There's no one from Haitian civil society in these meetings. These are closed door meetings with all these white people and the Westerners, um, and, and maybe one of Ali's representatives. And so um, at, at these meetings to make a decision whether or not to extend to extend the, uh, the, the, the mandate. And, and Haitians are saying, we have seen nothing but violence since the UN um, uh, started this occupation in 2004. In fact, violence has increased under, under uh, the mandate of the UN. And so why do we need to keep extending this? And, and, and we're all cynical as well, because you know, two days before this vote, all of a sudden you get news, you, know, you get Miami Herald and New York Times reporting on you know, increased violence in Haiti or gang violence in Haiti. And, and you know, and we're, we're, we know that this is a setup to actually extend this occupation. And, and, and what, what we wanted to also say, and, I'm, and I know I'm going on longer than I should, but what I wanted to say is like when we talk about violence in Haiti and the gang violence, no one asks where these military, military grade arms are coming in, where the ammunition is, ammunition is coming from, who's paying for it, who's sending it to the country, because Haiti doesn't manufacture guns. So if these young people have guns, who's bringing it in? And we think it's a, it, it's a really, it's a concentrated effort to make Haitians look so violent and deadly that they need continued foreign, foreign, foreign occupation. Yeah, and sadly, one of the issues in regard to this particular uh, occupation of Haiti is the involvement of some governments uh, in the world that otherwise are, are revolutionary, revolutionary or left or progressive leaning. Can you talk a little bit about that and why they are even involved? Right, and and this this to me is 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 um, the difficulty, right, of thinking about how to support leftist governments when Haiti is always <laughs> the one that's left out. I, I don't know. People know this, like you know, leftists. When people talk about Latin America, Haiti uh, in the Caribbean, Haiti is left out of, of even a lot of progressive movements. And for us and, at the Black Alliance for Peace, we really targeted um, uh, AMLO. Um, you know, president of Mexico, um, Andre, uh, Mr. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who really came out as like this leftist voice and everyone celebrated, um, especially around the summit of the, of the Americas that happened just last month, where he did not attend because the U.S. blockade against Cuba, but also because the U.S. refused to invite um, Venezuela and Cuba. And he, you know, and I, and I want to say this quote because he declared in boycotting the summit, he said, I believe in the need to change the policy that has been imposed for centuries to the exclusion, uh, the exclusion, the desire to dominate the lack of respect for the sovereignty of the countries. And for the and, and then he also called for the independence of every country. But then so everybody's uh, celebrating this. But then you realize Mexico is the so-called what they call a pen holder. Um, for the UN Security Council meeting and the vote on Haiti. And the pen holder refers to the member of the council. Mexico has a one-year uh, membership of the council. The pen holder is the member of the council that leads the negotiations and drafting of the resolution on a particular council item agenda. And so Mexico is a co-pen holder with the U.S. on drafting the legislation to, to perpetuate the U.N. occupation of Haiti. That, to me, is a complete contradiction, and it goes completely against what AMLO purportedly stands for. So we ask him, what about respect and sovereignty for the um, independence of Haiti? Does Haiti not count when you're talking about sovereignty for every nation in the Americas? And that's the thing. And for us, it's a double blow because, you know, before AMLO, you had Lula of Brazil in 2004 
using Haiti as a way to prove that they were fit to have a seat in the international stage. And so Brazil in 2004 really led the, you know, led the movement to actually led the military wing of the UN peacekeeping troops. And so this was also a leftist um, 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 government that did this to Haiti. So Haiti becomes this training ground for these Latin American nations, who have, even though they say that they're, they're leftists. And I think that to me is really, um, really um, terrible and, 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 and bad, 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 bad politics and bad for Haiti. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I was also hoping, Doctor, that you could kind of contextualize uh, uh, some of the the more current um, sort of issues that we're seeing in Haiti. I should say perhaps most recently in terms of uh, fuel shortages and, uh, you know, what's being reported as gang violence and things like that. I mean, how does that factor into um, sort of the conditions and really the landscape uh, uh, that's unfolding or really has been unfolding in Haiti for a while? Right. And I think this is a culmination of what the West has been wanting to do with Haiti for a long time ever since. This is the counter-revolution against it, the, 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 the major revolution that Haiti, Haitians won in 1986 to get rid of Duvalier. Um, and we brought in um, the Lavalas movement um, with, with Aristide at the head. And from that very moment, we had the, the counter-revolution, as Professor Gerald Horn would call it. Um, and, and they basically is culminated in this, where you have a state with no government, no parliament, and then you have increasing violence. And I have to mention this, uh, this idea, so-called gang violence, because part of it is, you know, young poor people have always been used by the elite to go after their, their adversaries, right? And, but we see this um, really uh, increasing demand um, um, the increasing uh, violence. And I think part of it has to do with the people who control the ports. The, the guns come through the ports and the ports are controlled by the Haitian elite. So we have to ask, who, you know, why is it that if minister, um, if the UN occupation is so concerned about Haiti, why are they not controlling these ports? How are they allowing all these things in? And we think it's a purposeful thing. And I also think there have been protests because once Haiti, Haitians were protesting and asking Russia and China to boycott the resolution that's happening today. And so there are protests asking China, um, Russia in particular, um, um, you know, to fight against U.S. imperialism by voting against the, uh, the occupation in Haiti. And, and, and what's interesting is that uh, the, the U.N. occupation actually went and met with Aristide um, when they realized they're trying to find, they're trying to save face because they realized Aristide now, after they deposed them, <laughs> they realized that he might be the only one to save the country. So they went and they were trying to have conversations with him and he turned them down but that also opened up the space for people to protest and say they want Aristide back. So I think they opened a Pandora, Pandora's box with trying to talk to Aristide. And I think, you know, we'll see what happens, but I think they're going to renew the voters today. I think they're going to renew the mandate against the wishes of the, the, the Haitian people without any say from the Haitian people. And then and then you're going to see, you know, the, the violence is going to keep escalating because I think they're perpetrating the violence. I think they're behind the violence. And I think they want to make it, you know, they want Haiti to, to suffer. And, you know, as Frederick Douglass said back in the 1800s, Haiti has never been forgiven <laughs> for winning that revolution. And I think this is a perfect example of that. And it's a sad, sad moment for us at this point. Yeah. And amidst all of this, uh, there was and, and it seems unrelated, but it's actually directly related to all of the chaos that is uh, uh, being created in, in Haiti. John Bolton recently said on Democracy Now! In, in And it seems like he was uh, uh, decrying the folks on January 6th actually trying to carry out a coup because, you know, they weren't smart enough. And he actually said, 
you know, stupid people, something like stupid people can't carry out a coup. You have to actually be smart to do that. Um, speaking, and I'm speaking as someone who has planned coup d'etat. And this is important because in relation to Haiti. Why is that, uh, Dr. Pierre? Well, it's very important because, you know, before, first of all, the hubris of Western imperialism is also going to be their downfall because it's just like these people are so bold. They can say, you know, they can say things out loud. They're saying the quiet parts out loud. And so as if we didn't know that they were behind all the coup d'etat. But, you know, before John Bolton, remember, the New York Times did this big story on Haiti and, 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 and the, 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 uh, the money that France stole from Haiti. And in there... It says explicitly that the U.S. removed Aristide from power. Mind you, we've been saying this from the very beginning, and they, they were saying, no, Aristide resigned. You know, yeah, especially a lot of academics in particular, and all the so-called leftists were saying Aristide was bad and he's, he resigned, even though we all knew this was, you know, WikiLeaks Salvi told us that these, this, these were coup d'etat, this was a coup d'etat. And so... They're bold and they said it. And, and what to me is it just what it does is just affirms what we've been saying, what people call us conspiracy theorists. It affirms everything. And with Haiti, this is so clear. There's just been one one um, um, uh, 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 intervention after another, one coup d'etat after another. And especially the 2004 coup d'etat that really is the beginning of the end of the beginning of this craziness, the chaos that we see in Haiti. And so, yes, John Bolton, just John Bolton, along with The New York Times, all these people are saying the quiet parts that we've always known. And, and I think and I think we need to, you know, believe them <laughs> when they say these things and act accordingly. And also this should also embolden us to say things that we, we know are happening, but people refuse to acknowledge. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Pierre, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the issue of inflation here in the United States. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Robert Hockett, uh, Edward Cornell Professor of Law at Cornell University and Senior Counsel for Westwood Capital. Dr. Hockett, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks so much. It's really great to be with you again. Absolutely. It's great to have you back, uh, Dr. Hockett. And it's being reported that U.S. inflation has hit uh, a high annual rate of 9.1 percent in June, which is uh, the highest we've seen since December of 1981. And this is according to the uh, Labor Department. And I mean, it feels like just one more sort of uh, a noteworthy issue that we've been seeing here in the economic picture in the U.S. So, Dr., I was hoping you could help us understand. And uh, how we got to this point, uh, uh, how you sort of see uh, the Fed handling things and, and what do you see as the way forward at this point? 
great. Yeah, thanks. What a, what a terrific question. I mean, right down to the right down to the very basics, to the very roots of the problem. Um, so I think you know maybe the best way to sort of tell this story to talk about it is to note sort of two disappearing uh, things or two sort of invisible uh, entities. Uh, the first invisible entity is the notion of production and the role that production plays in an economy, um, which of course is what gives us supplies. Uh, and the second invisible entity uh, is the profit margin, profits that are taken. Um, and uh, the sort of what we might call the incredible disappearing profit margins and the incredible disappearing uh, production side of the economy are really at the core of all of this. And uh, the fact that we don't talk about these things and that they're kind of disappeared uh, is, I think, very telling. And it's also preventing us from sort of getting at the diagnosis, the proper diagnosis and then the proper cure. So let's start with production. Um, we know um, that inflation is a relation, if I might put it that way. Uh, it's a relation between goods and services supplies on the one hand uh, and money supplies on the other, right, to put it sort of crudely. And that's why we get this expression sometimes, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Uh, what's sort of remarkable to me is that the sort of reactionary types, the right-wing economists, the Larry Summerses and his ilk, always focus only on the money side of all of this and never on the goods and services side. Um, and if you do that, if you think of it as, and to use Milton Friedman's old phrase, always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, you know, to the exclusion of everything else, then it's you're kind of like the person who only has a hammer. And of course, if you only have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. So, you know, you only have the Fed if you think it's only a monetary phenomenon, and then everything looks like something for the Fed to handle. And so you get people like Larry Summers saying that the Fed has to raise rates and basically induce uh, a 10% unemployment rate. Um, that is not only cruel and, 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 and obtuse and, and, and kind of creepy, even you know, misanthropic, uh, but it's also blind because, again, it completely ignores the supplier production side of things. If we look at that side and you ask what has happened to our economy over the last 30 or 40 years, really beginning with the Reagan years, but then really accelerating during the Clinton and Bush years, is we've outsourced, we've offshored most of our productive capacity. We just don't have the capacity to produce in the way that we once did. And by exporting those capacities, we also, of course, exported the best jobs that made for a thriving middle class uh, in the U.S. And so it seems to me that the right solution to the inflation problem is not to look at the money side of the equation, but the goods and services side of the equation, and basically reshore production and resume producing in this country and bring back high-paying union-scale middle-class jobs for, for all. Um, that's the first disappearance. The, the second disappearance I mentioned was the profit margin. What do I mean by that? Well, anytime prices go up, the other thing that the right-wing economists like Larry Summers do is they blame labor, right? They say, oh, we've got to tame labor. Labor is out of, out of hand. Labor has become militant again. There's too much unionization going on, blah, blah, blah. And then they point to wages and salaries as the principal component of inflation. But that's just flat out false. For one thing, wages and salaries are not keeping up with inflation. For another thing, we know this is all out there. All the data is out there. Profits, record profits have been, have been being gleaned by corporate America over the last couple of years. They've done very handsomely, in other words, through this pandemic. And yet nobody ever talks about the profit margin as another source of price, hence another source of inflation. And I would suggest to you guys, and I'm sure you already know this, that basically it's the profit margin that's the real core if we're talking about the short-term uh, inflation problem, in the same way that the lost productive capacity is the source of the longer-term part of the inflation problem. 
And I feel like, uh, Dr. Hockett, we've talked about uh, the, this focus on uh, the investor class and, and this uh, uh, ignoring the labor issue, the fact that if we want to address this problem, we really need to do exactly what, as you said, create more jobs and good paying union jobs that provide people the salaries that they need to pump money back into the economy. But I do wonder what would happen if the government focused on that investor class and did something like, oh, I don't know, keep uh, investors, uh, particularly corporate boards of directors, from using profits to reinvest in their companies, like using corporate profits to turn around or government subsidies to turn around and go back and buy back their own company's stock, which is one of the things that has driven a lot of uh, uh, this issue. What what impact would that have if the government just cracked down on that? I think that itself could have a very important impact as well. And it's really a great point for you to have noticed and brought up, it seems to me. it's it's. I mean, this also can't be under understated, it seems to me. I mean, not only are corporate profits at record levels over the last two years, but so are corporate share buybacks, as you just mentioned. Those are at record levels, too. And it's helpful if people sort of understand precisely what it means and what motivates that kind of behavior on the part of those boards. Basically, the idea behind the share buybacks is to sort of artificially pump up the price of the stock of the company. And that in turn is because the executives of these companies are paid salaries that are sort of indexed to share price, right? Supposedly that's to encourage them to sort of bring about higher performance on the part of those firms by sort of tying their 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 compensation to the performance of the stock of the company. But what that completely leaves out, or maybe let's say what it falsely assumes, is that there's some tight correlation or linkage between market share price on the one hand and actual productivity on the part of the firm on the other. <laughs> and there just is no such relation, at least not in the short and medium term. It's very easy artificially to jack up a share price simply by adding a bunch of demand for those shares to the market that wasn't there before. And when the corporation buys back its own shares, that's what it's doing. It's in effect making it look like there's high demand for those shares because people think the company is a great run company. But that's just not the story. The story is it's the executives pumping up the price of the stock so that they can basically line their own pockets more. So if we were to prohibit that, then there were basically those corporate profits wouldn't be able to be quote unquote reinvested in these sort of price pumping schemes. They would have to be reinvested in productive capacity, in actual production. So if we were by law, both to prohibit that and to prohibit any form of speculative financial activity on the part of corporations, we might actually get some rechanneling of so-called private capital into the productive sectors of the economy rather than just into Wall Street. Yeah, and uh, I'm wondering because uh, of all these sorts of 
um, tactics and policies that that are being you know thrown out to try to address inflation here in the U.S. And I just wonder if if you see them as uh, viable, Doctor. I mean, particularly um, not that long ago, we saw a Fed Chair Powell talk about how you know the U.S. needed to maintain. Uh, I think he said an unemployment rate of five uh, percent over about five years to help contain inflation and things like that. And that seems like it runs counter to what you were saying was a, a, a part of the solution in terms of giving people you know better jobs with better pay. And so, you know, why do you think that, uh, you know, we see um, elements of those, you know, in charge of the economics of this country, the summers and people like that, sort of having these kinds of solution as opposed to what, you know, you might put forth, Dr. Hockett? I think it's a kind of class war sort of situation, um, to, you know, just not to put too fine a point on it. Um, in effect, what they're doing, I think what Summers and people like what Larry Summers and people like him, and they seem now to have browbeaten uh, Chairman Powell into joining them on this. What they seem to have decided is that labor, quote unquote, is getting too uppity, if I might put it that way, because, of course, there's been high demand for labor as the economy has begun to recover. And that has brought about some wage rises and some salary rises. It's also brought about a greater degree of unionization than we've seen in a long time. And when even Starbucks or Amazon uh, is looking to be unionized, that's a really good sign for labor. And it's like something we haven't seen in this country since before the Reagan period. And I think people like Larry Summers know what class they belong to. And they're thinking, well, labor's getting too uppity, labor's demanding too much. Maybe we have to, quote unquote, tame labor or discipline labor. Those are actual quotes from another one of these people, Guy Martin Wolf over at the Financial Times. Um, and there's no better way to do that uh, <clears throat> than artificially to bring about a higher unemployment rate. And so Larry Summers, you know, and he's, he's, he doesn't even try to hide it. He said uh, a few weeks ago, we need a 10% unemployment rate for one year, a 6 to 7% unemployment rate for two and a half or three years, or a 5% employment, unemployment rate for at least five years to bring this inflation under control, quote unquote. And then you mentioned Powell just now. He's now, of course, singing the same Larry Summers tune, which I find astonishing to tell you the truth. But in any event, I think that's what's going on. It's in effect, they're declaring war on labor um, opportunistically. They're seeing that they have cover, uh, under, you know, the cover that's offered by a supposedly high inflation rate. They can use as an excuse to grow the industrial reserve on Army of the unemployed, uh, as a great 19th century political economist uh, once put it. And of course, since you mentioned war, there is the issue of the elephant in the room, the war in Ukraine. If that were stopped by diplomatic, diplomatic means that the United States is probably not going to allow Ukraine to enter into with Russia, but if by some miracle that actually happened and this war were ended tomorrow, how much of this talk about inflation would we still be having, say, a month later, as the money that's being funneled into this war suddenly isn't anymore? Yeah, that's another God, what another great question. You guys, you, you guys are the best. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the war itself is is functioning as yet another pretext, yet another cover uh, for those who are trying to, quote unquote, tame labor, basically by saying, look, there's this national emergency that we're faced with now. There's a, a war underway. Putin wants to take over the world. He's a madman and we have to stand up to him and prevent him from taking over the world as if a country of 120 million could take over the world or would have any interest in that. Um, in any event, it may another great pretext for all of these sort of austerity measures that they're trying to impose. So if the war were now suddenly 
gone. And so they can no longer point to the war as an excuse for rising petroleum prices or as a convenient excuse for rising food problems. That would sort of confront I think these people who are trying to, quote unquote, tame labor uh, with a, a challenge, they'd have to find additional or other pretexts. And my guess is they would probably then start focusing on, you know, more overtly on what they call labor militancy, which is basically just labor saying, hey, you know, we really ought to be paid enough to live. Um, and, you know, so they would basically start, I think, harping even more than they already are on some of various among the other pretexts that they commonly point to, uh, to explain their demands for these sort of austerity and monetary policies that they're demanding now. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Hockett, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, July 13th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 320 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.com. Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 2 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Joe Loria, the editor of Consortium News. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me back on to shoot the breeze for an hour. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It's great to have you back, Joe. And Joe, of course, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden has embarked on a trip to the Middle East. He reportedly has landed in uh, Jerusalem and will be making his way to uh, Saudi uh, Arabia as well, uh, seemingly to try to uh, strengthen ties uh, between these two countries. And what uh, it's my impression was uh, actually, uh, you know, a project uh, initiated by his predecessor, uh, Donald Trump, uh, 
which is interesting. And so I'm sort of curious your thoughts, Joe, not only on on Biden's trip and why uh, 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 Israel and Saudi Arabia are playing such a role here, but how do you think his trip sort of factors into the broader international situation we're dealing with right now? Well, it's an interesting trip. Uh, He, of course, during the campaign said that Saudi Arabia was a pariah nation uh, because of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, writer for the Washington Post who mildly criticized the Saudi regime. You know, and at the time, you know, the the sky was falling. Uh, We actually got an article contributed to Consortium News from a writer, a longtime writer for Consortium News, in, in which he tried to argue that the House of Saud would fall because of this. And I politely rejected the article because I thought nothing of the sort would happen and nothing of the sort happened. The U.S.-Saudi relationship is really as strong as it's ever been. That was just a blip on the radar. They had to react that way. And at the same time, and when I mean they, I mean the Democratic Party, Republicans, uh, the Congress, the entire government, the CIA said that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, the de facto king of Saudi Arabia and soon to be real king when his father dies, uh, that the CIA said he was personally responsible for this assassination. Uh, It was a horrific uh, event. There's no question about it. But there are so many more of those that happen every day in Saudi Arabia. There are beheadings for for very minor crimes. The the Saudis are a brutal regime. Uh, This is well known to anybody who wants to see that. They didn't start becoming a brutal regime when they killed that Journalists, they uh, have always been, and the Americans have since the famous meeting between uh, the King and Franklin Roosevelt in the Suez Canal at the towards the end of the Second World War, 1945, in which they basically laid the groundwork for this special relationship where the U.S. would provide security, and particularly a huge amounts of arms uh, transfers and sales to Saudi Arabia. And in exchange, Saudis would always allow their oil to be sold at reasonable prices to the what was then at the United, the United States, the largest industrial power in the world. You, we forget that because we've been so deindustrialized since then. But during the 50s, 60s, and even later, the, the U.S. was the powerhouse that China, for example, is today, the manufacturing powerhouse. But the U.S. still obviously needs plenty of oil, if not only to drive their war machine. And the war in Ukraine, uh, in particular, the U.S.-led sanctions against Russia that the Europeans eagerly, despite hurting themselves desperately, particularly on the fuel issue, uh, those sanctions have driven the price of oil up. Now, I should say that the rest of the world, Africa, India, of course, China and Russia, Latin America have not joined in those sanctions. The vast uh, portion of humanity is not supporting the U.S. in this war. They're not standing with Ukraine. They are uh, continuing to trade with Russia and China and creating a new economic system, really, that's hurting the West, that's boxing in the United States in their sick dreams of global domination. But the oil price is key to Biden because, as every American knows, the major issue in an election is economic, and within that is the price of gasoline. And it's gone sky high, higher in Europe than here, but high enough that it threatens the Democrats in the November election. Biden's poll numbers are disastrous. 33%, I believe, was the last number. The New York Times yesterday (coughs) published a story saying something like uh, two-thirds of Democrats want someone else to run 
for president in the next presidential election. So he's clearly in political trouble. He needs the gas prices to come down. He can blame Putin all he wants. It is the sanctions. The U.S. wanted this war. We've discussed this in previous programs. They wanted the U.S. to invade, sorry, Russia to invade, excuse me, mostly because they wanted to uh, lodge this economic war against Russia, against the central bank, and the ruble is now stronger than it's ever been, and uh, against fuel imports and other commodities from Russia and also the information war to shut down RT America and in Europe to make illegal Sputnik and RT and to lead to the attacks on independent media such as our own, as we've discussed in previous programs. So Biden needs the Saudis to open the spigot, essentially. He needs to patch anything up. And frankly, I don't think that relations were all that bad between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, partly because Saudi Arabia has joined with the UAE and Morocco to uh, have diplomatic relations with Israel, which a longstanding goal of Israel and the United States. So uh, the Saudis are, uh, and the Americans are going to patch up publicly whatever uh, dispute they had over Yemen as well. Of course, the Yemen war, there were a lot of rumblings in the Congress. They were going to cut off U.S. aid and all that. And I think now that this uh, is a moment, we should look at the mainstream press, how they covered this trip. Will they hold Biden to account for going back on his word for the things he said about Saudi Arabia during the presidential campaign. I, I don't think so. I think there's mild criticism already. But essentially, the Democratic-biased media, the majority of it, they have something at stake here, too. They they don't want to lose the November election. And this is supposed to be an objective media, but let's face it, they, uh, they, they want the Democrats to win, I think. And uh, Biden will have to overcome any embarrassment this trip will cause in order to get that gas price down. It's a practical matter for Biden, the Democratic Party. Yeah, you know, and another part of this trip that is uh, seriously uh, a mess for Joe Biden is his uh, upcoming visit to uh, Israel. Well, actually, the occupied territory of Palestine, where Biden is supposed to uh, actually fly to Saudi Arabia from Israel and in furthering Trump's uh, support of Israel. Uh, he's continuing to make this you know, progress with uniting Saudi Arabia and Israel while kind of throwing crumbs to the occupied people uh, uh, of Palestine, where I guess he's expected to visit a hospital in Palestine, uh, specifically in East Jerusalem, and announce $100 million in new funding for the hospital facilities, but nothing about the settlements that we we know about, you know, nothing about moving the embassy out of Jerusalem, not, not going back on Trump's policies to legitimize and entrench the uh, Zionist ethno-state of Israel in occupied Palestinian territory. You know, what are your thoughts about uh, Biden continuing that aspect of Trump's uh, policies? What daylight is there between American presidents and their relations with Israel? <clears throat> there was personal animosity between Barack Obama and Benjamin Netanyahu. There have been Jimmy Carter, uh, has been out of the presidency most critical of Israel. Um, it's still official U.S. policy, I suppose, that the colonies, I call them the settlements as they're known, are uh, illegal. It's a U.N. Security Council uh, resolution that the U.S. actually voted for. So 
There's no dispute on the legal issue of whether these are legal or not, whether they should be disbanded, but that's just a piece of paper at this point, and it almost always has been, as far as the West and the U.S. is concerned. Biden has continued, yes, it's a very good point about Trump's policies towards Israel and, and Trump's policy towards Saudi Arabia in the, other, in the end of it, too. Trump was far less uh, of a BS artist when it came to Saudi Arabia. He didn't give a damn about human rights and never said anything about it. Brutal, but he doesn't uh, feign uh, concern like the Democrats do uh, and then forget all about it when it comes down to the gas prices. So uh, there's no difference in any U.S. administration in terms of its unbelievably strong support for Israel and for Saudi Arabia, two of the worst human rights abusers in the world, let alone in the region. Uh, and this is well documented by any human rights organization worth its salt. Uh, we, this is not in dispute, cannot be disputed. But this is politics, and this is geopolitics, and this is about U.S. interests, ultimately, more than Saudi or Israeli interests. The U.S. needs Israel to be a strong ally in the region. They certainly need Saudi Arabia to be a strong ally in the region. And they uh, continue to call shots uh, in those countries. But, you know, they have a way also, the Saudis and the Israelis, of get, trying to get the Americans to fight their wars for them because they don't have the military power. The U.S. does. But the fact that they moved the embassy, that would have been a very important symbolic move by Biden to show that all other administrations before Donald Trump refused to do that, although Israel had always asked for the embassy to be moved to Jerusalem. It was Trump. They hated Trump by the Democrats that actually went ahead and did this outrageous thing. And here's Biden not even, I don't think he's even said a word about it. So that is not on the agenda. It's not going to happen. It's disgraceful, uh, to put it uh, bluntly, that, that this uh, remains the case and that all of the horrible uh, policies of Trump, which were worse than other administrations, and they were pretty bad to begin with in terms of their relations with Israel, that he's not uh, reversing any of that, not even questioning any of it. Israel and Saudi Arabia will remain strong allies as long as the United States remains a predominant power in the world and in the region. You can bank on those two governments uh, and the United States forming close relations. And now, as I pointed out before, and you did, that he's flying directly from Jerusalem to Saudi Arabia, all those days are over. I mean, the Saudis always uh, uh, secretly had relations with Israel, going back to the war in Yemen in the 1960s. The war led by Nasser in Egypt against the, the king, kingdom in Yemen. Uh, the Israelis, we know now, uh, was, were asked for intelligence help and other help by Saudi Arabia in supporting Yemen against the, uh, the revolutionary forces then. So this is not a new thing. It's just out in the open now. And like so many other things that are now out in the open that used to be hidden, this is uh, disturbing, but barely registers a blip on the media screen. They celebrated this Abraham Accord uh, that solidifies Israel's place in the Middle East and absolutely threw the Palestinians completely under the bus. The, this is something that no one gives a damn about, and including the major tier, uh, despots in the Gulf region. They've never really supported the Palestinians very much. Uh, the Qataris uh, do have relations with Hamas and have been funding them. Iran has a more vocal support, and they're not Arabs, for the Palestinians, uh, which is why they're, one of the reasons they're so hated by Israel and by the United States. And this is a disgrace the way the, Palestinian, the Arab leaders have treated the Palestinians 
increasingly uh, dismissing their interests and they're becoming a forgotten conflict and a forgotten people. And, and the only time the Western media really says anything about the Palestinians is when the Israelis do their periodic mowing of the grass, when they decide they've got to slaughter a thousand or so Palestinians in Gaza and, and crush any uprising in the West Bank. So that's when we hear about the Palestinians. It's really one of the most disgraceful episodes in post-war history. Yeah. And, you know, you said a lot earlier, Joe, when you talked about how there's very little daylight generally between um, the the foreign policies uh, between uh, the Democrats and uh, uh, the Republicans. And that's particularly stark, I think, in this situation when you have someone like Joe Biden who, you know, swore that he was the antidote, that he was the antithesis to Donald Trump. And you had this idea, or at least it was presented to us, like uh, Biden would come in and correct everything that uh, uh, Trump had uh, messed up or whatever and what have you. And he just promoted himself as the anti-Trump. But as you've pointed out, uh, in terms of foreign policy, I mean, he's basically been in support of uh, a lot of those policies, having continued uh, a good number of them and even intensified some in some cases. And so what do you think then is is really sort of uh, uh, driving this, Joe? Because I just feel like the more time goes on, the more we see that uh, we really live under one party in the United States, sort of in two different uh, guises, if you will. But both sides uh, are still so intent on making the rest of us believe, you know, that they're mortal enemies and all these sorts of things. You know what I mean? Yeah. What's behind it is what Barack Obama called the blob, the foreign policy establishment that runs the foreign policy and that both parties are beholden to. And that Except Trump, by the way, who tried to break, like meeting the North Korean leader, which was a, 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 a wise diplomatic move. And I know, when it, and he got into a lot of trouble with the blob. What's the blob? First of all, the blob, of course, is the State Department, the intelligence services, the foreign intelligence, CIA, mostly DIA, those uh, intelligence agencies that deal with foreign issues, the think tanks funded very much by the United Arab Emirates, by Saudi Arabia, by arms manufacturers who always have their finger in the pie in all of these issues, stirring up conflict and whatnot and tension. Uh, and um, that the, that conglomerate, the Council on Foreign Relations, people too much emphasis on that in a conspiratorial way, but it's part of this permanent bureaucratic establishment in the United States that uh, re, that. Re, dictates and makes sure that the this these can policies, these bipartisan foreign policy policies, not just the Middle East, continue and will never be challenged by any president. And as I said, Trump did try to challenge one of the reasons he got in trouble with them. And on North Korea, for example, I remember when he when he went there and met with uh, Kim Jong un that at the time I did some research when Nixon went to China. And I saw the New York Times, which was no friend of Richard Nixon, praised him. Democratic Party leaders in the Congress, including Ted Kennedy and others, they praised him for a bold diplomatic move to try to reduce tensions. Of course, it also was to isolate the Soviet Union, but they did not see that as a mistake to go to China, which was even more of an earthquake uh, diplomatically and politically than Trump's fitful attempts to to have a deal, some kind of uh, relations or dialogue, at least with North Korea. But but, but the Democrats have condemned him. I mean, they absolutely blabbed, including Republicans, of course, but the Democrats especially hated Trump for going to try to talk to the North Koreans. What is wrong with talking 
with your so-called enemies. I mean, this was an outrage. I remember at the time I wrote a piece saying that, and Ro Khanna wrote me an email. He had read it, his staff had showed him the article, and he praised me for, and he's a Democrat, of course, but most of them, of course, did not want anybody to go against this blob. And the fact that Obama mentioned that infamous now Atlantic Magazine article, he that he called it the blob, shows that he was aware, as other presidents, I'm sure, are, and Trump was aware, that there is this permanent establishment, and no matter how much power you have, even supposedly the most powerful human on earth, the president of the United States, cannot go against them. You recall Chuck Schumer's <coughs> unbelievable statement to to um, Rachel Maddow, in which he, he said uh, he said that Trump's not a very intelligent man, because if you go against the intelligence services, they have seven ways to Sunday to get back at you. And this guy, this is the Senate Majority Leader now, saying on tel national television that the intelligence service are much more powerful than a president, that if you try to go against them, they're going to hurt you. And that, that was an unbelievable admission. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, a guy like Biden is a creature of this blob. He's been as the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee chairman back in the 90s. And his entire, you know, and, and I don't have a, a lot of respect for the depth of his knowledge that he says he has about the world and that he has the knowledge of what the United States interests are and how to pursue them. And that's Biden. He's a big part of this blob. Trump was an outsider, obviously. There's no danger of Trump going, sorry, Biden going against the blob. He wouldn't even talk about the blob. At least Barack Obama did. He identified it as a problem, essentially, but one he could not solve, one he could not go against. It's permanent. It's going to last as long again as the U.S. remains a predominant power on the earth. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DDC, we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Joe Loria. And Joe, uh, you mentioned a little earlier in our conversation about how uh, alternative media platforms have uh, uh, been uh, attacked, uh, uh, especially around their coverage of the war in Ukraine. And last time we had you on, excuse me, we talked about how Consortium News had been targeted um, by a PayPal and had their money seized and things like that. Wasn't eminently clear why, although it uh, strongly seemed to be the case, it had something to do with um, consortium's uh, uh, coverage of Ukraine. And, you know, there was also this uh, supposed watchdog news guard that had got involved. So I wanted to ask if there had been any, uh, any updates with that whole situation, where things uh, 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 sort of sit and sort of how you're sort of seeing this uh, censorship and suppression campaign against alternative media that's been unfolding uh, for a little while now. Well, there's no change with PayPal. They've suspended us permanently, and that's the end of that. They did give us our money back after Matt Taibbi wrote a piece on his Substack about it, and it's Mint Press News also, it happened to them. <coughs> Excuse me, and the New York Post actually picked up on that, and then suddenly our money was restored. But they will not lift the ban. That's the end of the matter. Our donors responded 
tremendously to this uh, by giving us our best spring fund drive ever. So, uh, yes, it hurts that we can't use PayPal and to pay our writers and to get donations, but there are ways to overcome it, and our donors showed that very strongly, and we appreciate that. On NewsGuard, we're still waiting for their determination. Uh, they accused us in the very first email that was sent to us of publishing false content on Ukraine, specifically about the role of neo-Nazism in Ukrainian society and also on whether there was a coup in 2014 or not and whether the U.S. was involved. And um, some people, like at Naked Capitalism, we got attacked for even responding to them. Now, that was one option to say, well, screw them, we're not even going to bother you're uh, acknowledging your existence. That's what WikiLeaks did, for example. And WikiLeaks got the red check, the red check, the hard red scarlet check from NewsGuard, which appears if you have their extension uh, installed on your browser. And that on all Microsoft computers sold in the world now, that is automatically part of the software in the browser from Microsoft computers. You have to activate it, but it's easy. It's there. It's also on many, many, many computer, excuse me, computers in libraries, public libraries in the United States and in Europe. Uh, and what and they, they warn the readers that you should proceed with caution because this website is publishing false content, false information. So obviously it's not a good thing to have that. It's not the end of the world. WikiLeaks has continued. Other websites have red marks. They continue to publish. But who knows, especially students in the library, at universities, university libraries, it's been installed. It's not a good thing. So we decided uh, we would respond. And what we did was turn the tables on NewsGuard. And they had their own reporting on, on those issues about Ukraine. And I, I think, systematically destroyed their position and said that they were publishing false content. And they the ones who needed to make Corrections. It was a 9,000-word article that documented in one place all the evidence about a coup in 2014 and the role of neo-Nazism in Ukrainian society going way back to the Second World War and the U.S. involvement with those Nazis from the late 1940s. Uh, so we're still waiting for them. They got a lot to read, and I don't know how long they're going to take. There was another SOT, I think it's S-O-T-T dot net, has reported that it took them a news guard a year to finally give them a red label. I don't know what they're going to do, but uh, we're waiting on that. The The newest information that involved in this issue of pressuring independent media came from the Gray Zone. Gray Zone published a couple of articles with leaked emails, <coughs> excuse me, leaked emails that showed that uh, a British journalist, pretty prominent, Paul Mason, his name is, in discussions with a foreign office official who now works in Brussels for the British government, he was discussing not only Grey Zone, how they could damage and defund and, and really destroy Grey Zone, but they also mentioned Consortium News in some of these emails. And in fact, this British official sent an email to Nina, none other than Nina Jankovitz, who was the short-lived director of of Biden administration's Orwellian disinformation governance board, which I argue was like uh, Woodrow Wilson's dream of having official secrets censorship in the Espionage Act. He lost by one vote. Now here comes Biden with this Department of Homeland Security 
uh, sponsored and run uh, Disinformation Governance Board. And Jankowitz wrote back saying that Consortium News looked like, you know, didn't she didn't think we were funded, presumably by a foreign power, but that we were useful idiots. Well, I responded to that in an article in which I suggested that Jankowitz and Mason and all these people are dealing in this cottage industry that's grown up of of, of the disinformation warriors trying to fight all this and protect the publics of the Western world from the disinformation of independent websites like Consortium News that links to no government or any advertiser or any corporation whatsoever who only wants to publish full stories with the context, historical, and various points of view on news events such as Ukraine, that they ought to look in the mirror and see maybe that they are drinking the Kool-Aid coming out of Whitehall and Washington, that maybe they are useful idiots of American and British intelligence services who are well known for their skills in disinformation. It's a big part of what intelligence services do. So this is a terrible war going on. Why is it happening? I think, why are they going after Consortium News? Consortium News, we have uh, 10,000 readers a day on average. At at the start of the war, we had 40,000 readers. This is not a massively influential website, but it's been around since 1995. It's been anti-establishment ever since Bob Perry founded it then. It opposed the invasion of Iraq, while most of the media supported it. It was one of the first, if not the first, Bob Perry was to debunk Russiagate. Um, It is in the business of examining the establishment narratives of the media. And, you know, we always got called Putin puppets and Kremlin students. Bob Perry was vilified for that. He was called a Saddam apologist. But, you know, you look at historians who uh, try to examine the causes of the Second World War. They often point to the Versailles Treaty and the onerous conditions imposed on Germany and the backlash that caused, which helped the rise of Nazism and ultimately the war. None of those historians are called Hitler apologists. But when we at Consortium News try to examine and report on the causes of the Ukraine crisis and the Ukraine war, we are called Putin apologists. And uh, this is why is this happening? Because social media. In the old days, it was much easier for government to control major media that was much smaller in number. There's a famous story of Lyndon Johnson having three TV sets in the Oval Office where he would watch ABC, CBS, and NBC nightly news broadcasts about the Vietnam War, and he would get on the phone and chew out the anchor, anchor man or the head of news department if he didn't like something. So, I mean, th- th- this is different today with social media, any citizen of any country, really, can start their own publication, their own webcast, or they can reach thousands of people with their tweets. So they're going nuts. They cannot control the narrative the way they could earlier. And, it, and this is leading to these dis- these private disinformation warriors, their relationships with government, which is troubling, this disinformation governance board. they trying to clamp down. So it started really with WikiLeaks and the arrest and imprisonment and prosecution of Julian Assange is the symbol of this attack on a independent media that reveals crimes, corruption, malfeasance by Western governments who crack down on a journalist the way any tin pot dictator would throw a journalist in a dungeon. And now they're going, it's filtering down to people on social media and websites like Consortium News. So we have some credibility. Obviously, they wouldn't be going after us. We have some influence. We're read in Washington. 
uh, it's a small number of people, they're troubled by the fact that we're just reporting causes of the war, <clears throat> giving historical context for the war. We're not supporting the war, we're reporting on it. This is intolerable to people in, in positions of power whose job it is to shut down these alternative discussions. This is, goes completely against all of their protestations that they're for a free press and democracy. And I'm talking about British and American government officials constantly going on, blinking on World Press, free Day, World Press Freedom Day with his unbelievable BS statements. They are willing to damage their image of, of supporting democracy free press, particularly with the Assange case. They know that this hurts them, that this undermines those, those statements that they are for a free press when they have thrown a journalist in jail for publishing and nothing else, no other reason, and accurate information, incidentally. And you're allowed to make mistakes. You could be wrong in the media. You should not be shut down. But in Assange's case, he wasn't even wrong. This is where we're at, at this critical moment in American journalism. And again, there's a history of this. John Adams with his Sedition Act threw people in jail who wrote things he didn't like. And Wilson fell one vote short of getting censorship into the Espionage Act. Then he had his own Sedition Act and threw many people in jail for things that they wrote and spoke, particularly about against the draft in the First World War. There was McCarthyism. And now we're coming back again, this recurring trend in American history of clamping down on free press while at the, at the other side of them out saying they totally in favor of the free press and believe the press needs to hold government accountable. I mean, it's the largest crock of rubbish about and hypocrisy you can imagine. And this is what's going on now. So they are really, I think, troubled by the fact that social media has made them lose control. And so everybody who says anything, whether it's true or false, is disinformation if they don't agree with it. Who are they? People in government. They can't control this. This is the antithesis of a free press. When government is involved in shutting down voices, that particularly legitimate criticism, indigenous American criticism of American policies, by smearing them as agents of a foreign power, just like in the Vietnam War, protesters on the streets who legitimately criticized the U.S. murderous policy. In Vietnam, we're called puppets in, of Hanoi and Beijing and Moscow. Same old trick, same old dirty trick, rolled out over and over again. They largely get away with it because the mainstream media still has enormous influence and power in shaping people's ideas about what's going on in the world in, in general and Ukraine in particular. But because of social media, because of websites like ours, and because the American people and the European people, Western people are not as dumb as they think. They could figure things out. They could discuss things. Some people can still think for themselves. And if they get a little bit of information from a place like Consortium News that they help them to expand their critical thinking, well, this cannot be tolerated. So they're, they're not in total control, but that's their aim, a total totalitarian control of information. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and this is really important in this particular time when we're talking about uh, the Ukraine war specifically and how that information is, I think, causing cracks in the foundation of support, even in this country, even as the media continue to prop up, you know, poor, plucky Ukraine and Zelensky is being attacked by the evil Russians, when the Pentagon uh, authorized is another additional uh, 40, $400 million for Ukraine's defense just this past Friday. And, and, and the estimated total of U.S. security spending on the war since 
February of this year is now under Biden. All money that Biden threw at Ukraine uh, totals to about eight billion dollars. I mean, it's really difficult to control the, the, the outrage that people are expressing when those kinds of numbers are realized, especially as this com- uh, country is on the precipice of a recession. That's right. And not only is it uh, the military spending as part of that big package, but the U.S. government is literally keeping the Ukrainian government functioning. They are paying for basic services and basic functions of the Ukrainian government. Now, think about that for a moment. This government will never allow a national health insurance system that every civilized country in the world has. They won't allow housing. They won't allow all the basic services that the American people are paying. It's our money, right? We're paying for the government to function. We would like a little bit back if we need it. And to help people who are victims of a, of a brutal capitalist system who get thrown away on the on the heap when they are not needed anymore. This is where government has to step in to mitigate the harshness of a free market system of capitalism. And if that money doesn't go to the American people to help them, uh, and then they, those American people realize that, see, not only is it going to fund unnecessary wars of expansion uh, of American interests around the world, or to try to bring down Russia through using Ukraine, but that it's not being spent on their own needs, but it's being spent to help a foreign government function. It's like every 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 so every couple of years, it seems like the U.S. government shuts down and they have to have this emergency bill to keep the government functioning. Well, this is like an emergency bill to keep the Ukrainian government functioning. This would outrage anybody who knows that. Well, they don't want people to know that. I mean, obviously, it's there. It's in the. It's reported that that's part of it. It's not widely discussed. Instead, it's part of this tsunami of reporting that uh, this is a black and white, good versus evil war in Ukraine. There are no gray areas. There's no complexities in this, how this happened. There's no history to this. It's just an evil guy who's attacked a totally innocent country, and we got to support them. So we got to give them our money, our literally our taxpayers' money to them to keep them going so we can keep this war going to try to weaken Russia and kill so many more Ukrainians too. And beyond outrage, and uh, they don't want people thinking that way, but I think a lot of American people do understand that. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252113201320 I am here Jackie Lukeman is here Joe Loria is here and we have a caller on the line here Peter tell us what's on your mind Hey man and, and thank you for having Joe on and and if you guys are in DC I just want to know if you feel feel anything I mean the Ukraine war is not going good I mean they sold it as crazy Putin just wanted to expand his territory 
Yeah, you know, it, it's an interesting question you raised there, Peter. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. And I mean, I, at this point in D.C., uh, things I think ha- have more or less leveled off. But immediately following uh, the invasion, uh, uh, we saw some interesting things. People who have uh, who are listening to the show around then may remember. I made note of this uh, uh, large uh, pro-Ukraine rally that took place down by the White House where you saw the red and black flags of the right sector. And and I still remember there was one guy who had on a red and black scarf that had Stepan Bandera's face on it. You know, I saw that with my own eyes. This is a Nazi collaborator. You know what I mean? And then in certain neighborhoods like, you know, uh, uh, Georgetown and uh, places like Glover Park, it, I mean, it's almost like being in West Kiev. I mean, there's, you know, Ukraine flags everywhere. I even recently found out there's a... Um, uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church uh, in nearby Maryland. And so, you know, sometimes you'll see people uh, outside of the the Russian embassy that's there. Amnesty International had a couple of trucks that was out there. So, I mean, while things have sort of uh, layered off uh, at this point in terms of the, the sentiment around here uh, recently, it's it's certainly uh, gone through some changes. Uh, we have another caller on the line here. Kier, tell us what's on your mind. Hello, good afternoon, y'all. I hope y'all are doing well. I just I don't know if y'all talked about it already, but I was just curious on y'all's thoughts about John Bolton's comments about how he's planned coup d'etats abroad and how it does take skill. Um, I was like, do they just think that Americans don't watch the news or do they just know that or have a hope that we're not going to do anything about it? Or sometimes I feel like the things they say are just white out in the open. Like, for example, also, they'll have a study that says, like, 10 years ago, the USA killed 10,000 people. I'm exaggerating, obviously. But then it's like they just put it out there with no with no kind of fear of repercussions or anything like that. So I just wanted to know y'all's thoughts on what y'all think that the politicians and oligarchs think about our own agency and what they can get away with and do. Thanks for the call and thanks for the time. Well, thank you, Kier. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, yeah, for folks who don't know, uh, Kier's making reference to an interview that John Bolton gave uh, uh, to uh, Jake Tapper of uh, CNN uh, following the January 6th hearings. We actually have a clip of that that we're going to play right now, and I want to come back and get your response, Joe. It's not an attack on our democracy. It's Donald Trump looking out for Donald Trump. It's a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. I don't know that I agree with you, to be to be uh, fair, with all due respect. Uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Ultimately, he did unleash the rioters at the Capitol. Yeah, and so a, a rare, a rare bit of uh, of honesty here from the likes of someone like uh, uh, John Bolton, Joe, just coming right out and admitting something that I th- that a lot of us certainly already knew is that he did have a hand in orchestrating some of these uh, uh, coups. I mean, the United States does that as a matter of routine and has for some time. But uh, your thoughts on this? Well, I think your caller very astutely pointed out that this is a sense of impunity that an official or a former official like Bolton has, where he could just say that on national television and not think twice about it. So uh, it's what he does. It's uh, He's made outrageous statements before about the UN losing the top 10 floors. Nobody would notice, but Secretary General's office is in the top 10 floors. Uh, he's, he's one of the more outrageous figures on the right in American politics, one of the most odious figures. I covered John Bone as a 
correspondent at the time for the Boston Globe at the UN when he was UN ambassador. So I had many, many exchanges with him. I wrote a long piece about him, uh, about his psychopathology in my view. But here he's telling the absolute truth and it's quite uh, refreshing to hear him admit it, that the US takes part in coups. Uh, he doesn't think that's, he thinks that's a good thing, obviously. Uh, he's proud of it, he wouldn't say it on TV, he wants credit for doing that. And at the other time he's saying what I said at the, on January 6th and 7th and ever, ever since that day, this was not a coup attempt against the United States government. They, people say they have no idea what a coup is, and he basically pointed out, takes a lot of planning and work. And the military is involved to take over the radio station and the airport. Think about the next time you hear of a coup somewhere. The, the TV station, the radio station is seized, the airport is taken, and the military has got to be on the side of the coup or they're going to be crushed. None of that happened on January 6th. This was a riot. It was a crazy day. It was, you could, by the FBI's definition, it was an insurrection. That doesn't mean an insurrection is not necessarily a coup. You can have an insurrection on a ship. It's not a coup. So uh, by, uh, Bolton, who should know, knows what he's talking about, is, uh, is in a backhanded way by trying to say this wasn't a coup, because I know what a coup is. I mean, so I'm very, I'm very grateful to him. And I have to say, Jake Tapper, I don't give two dams what Jake Tapper agrees with or not. This is a good sign of what's happened to journalism. A TV interview is, is interviewing a former government official about something. You ask questions, you get the answers. He's, we, do we care what Jake Tapper's opinion is? He doesn't agree with him. But this is the entertainment value now of, of so-called news. It's about the anchor person. It's about the presenter. They are, it's all about, the show's marketed around them. It's all about, it's like, it's like a, a talk show. It's like Johnny Carson could have done a better job interviewing people about the news seriously than Jake Tapper does. Because that's the same kind of role. Who cares what Jake Capert thinks? That really bothered me. That's a total aside. But it comes to Bolton <clears throat> admitting the U.S. was involved in coups. I mean, there's a long, long, long list of coups that the CIA started to get involved with. And there, uh, back in the late 40s, when it was first founded in Syria, was its first one. And all the way through the most famous ones in Guatemala and Iran. And then in Chile in 73. And in Ukraine in 2014. Uh, they throw overthrow governments that stand in the way. The U.S. aim is global dominance, and you cannot do that without friendly governments in key places. And U.S. routinely overthrows governments. I should point out that through my research, and I covered the U.N. for 25 years, so I, I know a little bit about international law and the U.N. Charter. There's no prohibition in the U.N. Charter about meddling in the affairs of another country. Uh, it's There's nowhere... And I did some research on this, and there's been papers written about it. It's not clear that there's any real international law against the coup d'etat, which is quite shocking to me. Uh, that is not in any way justified doing it. But it's not necessarily an illegal act in terms of international law. What is illegal is for uh, a UN official to work uh, on behalf of his government inside the UN. So the, a government can't meddle with the work of the UN. That's the charter of the UN says. But having said that, the US has no moral right to overthrow another government that, uh, while claiming to be spreading democracy. They have overthrown many democratically elected presidents, from Salvador Allende to Viktor Yanukovych, and many in between. They've also overthrown military, other military dictators or people they don't like who were not elected, but it doesn't stop them from overthrowing a democratically elected government. And yet they go out there and say they're spreading democracy. I'm not sure I've heard Bolton ever say spreading democracy, and that would be in line with him just saying we overthrowing governments, because then it, 
those governments are not in the interests of the United States. And we have a right to overthrow it because we have the might to overthrow those governments. So that was a very illuminating <coughs> interview with John Bolton. Uh, and Mr. Tapper's opinions I don't really care about. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I think once I got over the fact that uh, Bolton just said the quiet part out loud about U.S. foreign policy, I, I think the fact that struck me about that interview and that particular exchange was Jake Tapper's lack of a response. Because, you know, Joe, if it were me, I would sit yeah. there and say, oh, you— Coups? Where? Which coups were that? When, when, like, literally when John Bolton said, I mean, okay, I plan coups. Well, you know, not here, in other places. That's obviously the part where the journalist says, really? What other places would they have been? <laughs> but that is not what happened with Jake Tapper. And I don't think in watching any of the coverage on CNN since that interview uh, uh, was aired, I don't think anybody on CNN has asked that question. Where were these coups that John Bolton just admitted he was involved in planning since he's so smart? Jake Tapper is full of himself and his opinion. And I think that's part of the strategy of marketing the show. They, they, their viewers are atta uh, attached to the presenter, to Tapper in this case. And what his opinions are, are theirs. And the, he, they want to identify with him up against John Bolton or some other, other person being interviewed. That's not the role of a journalist. This is a, a talk show host. And you like you, you tune in because you like the, the host of the show, right? Not so much the guests because you like to watch the host of a talk show. So that's the same with this. And But you're absolutely, absolutely right. If he were a journalist, and Tapper is not, may have been once in the past, he is not fulfilling that function right now. He should have followed up, as you're saying, Jackie, that, well, where were these coups, by the way? Uh, what do you know about these coups? Okay, well, even without even giving an opinion on what they are, just give us some more facts about that. That's news. It stared him in the face. He's not a newsman. A newsman, a newsperson, a newswoman would have responded the way you just suggested. Well, give us the facts, Bolton. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, totally. And uh, I think you're right when you talk about how it's just indicative of the issue of what passes for journalism in this uh, uh, country at this point, uh, uh, Joe, where, I mean, you know, it was like corporate-owned media is basically just one long commercial for uh, the whims and uh, opinions of the state and of uh, the U.S. government. There's like this unquestioning uh, towing of that line. And anything outside of that is not only dismissed, as we've been saying, it's uh, being outright attacked. And I can't help but think there's a connection between this uh, a censorship and suppression campaign and the worsening of material conditions in the United States. If you look at the economic situation, the social situation, the political situation, all these uh, intertwined uh, systemic problems that are all imploding all at once. And so then it seems uh, uh, necessary in a way uh, to actually have this kind of censorship and suppression as part and parcel of basically trying to maintain a U.S. hegemony. And so the fact that we're seeing these attacks on alternative media in the name of suppressing, quote unquote, disinformation, I think sort of speaks to uh, uh, the reality of uh, an imperial country that knows it's in decline and is basically trying to hold together the lies that it's told about itself for, for so long through all kinds of uh, ruthless means. 
could not have said it better myself. This is 40 years or more of neoliberal economic policies that have shown that has shown an enormous shift of wealth from the bottom up to the top to few oligarchs and billionaires. And they need to preserve that. And they know that. And they look at history. Anytime that happens throughout history, and it's happened many, many times, obviously, you're going to get uh, unrest. You're going to get rebellion. You're going to have, and that's why I think there's militarized police in the United States. They're prepared. They know. They took the chance. We're going to steal the people's money, essentially. I'm not saying they said this out loud consciously, but they know that by these years of these neoliberal policies, of privatizations, of cutbacks on social uh, uh, services by government, that there's going to be a, a backlash eventually. And they are preparing for that. And one of the ways is absolutely what you just said, is to control the news, to control the information, to give a false narrative about what's really going on, so that you're getting a, a conflict in people's minds. I'm poor. I don't have a job. I can't pay for the, the, the health bills. And yeah, I'm living in the greatest country in the world. And we're defending democracy all over the world. And our sons and daughters are dying to do that. But wait a minute. You know, uh, you see that this is, you're not living in the greatest country in the world. And this is not a fair country. And they are, it is an imperial country uh, with many, many wars, the Iraq war being the preeminent one uh, of absolutely unnecessity and killing hundreds of thousands of civilians to pursue American global interests and dominance. And when they have governments in Beijing and Moscow that do that are causing real problems for them, well, they're the ones that they're focusing on now in ways to undermine and weaken, as Lloyd Austin said, weaken Russia, take it down, go back to the days of Yeltsin when they Wall Street was pretty much running Russia, uh, stripping assets and enriching themselves and impoverishing the Russian people. They've got to take out these governments somehow in order to, because this has a logic of expansion. When you are that obsessed with power and money, I don't think there's ever a point where you say, well, I've got enough now and I'm comfortable. Let's help somebody else. Now, they don't think that way, obviously. You can see it by their actions. And it is all part of, yes, this economic a shift of 40 years and the clampdown on information and media and the expansion of wars. Other than that, everything's great in America, right? <laughs> yeah, everything's just copacetic. And, you know, this is really uh, uh, what it boils down to, I think, Jackie. And uh, like I say, it's just very relevatory and very indicative of the moment that we're in. We're at every level. Uh, we see the consciousness and the living conditions of poor, working and oppressed people just uh, uh, being attacked. And it, it's not an exaggeration, I think, to discuss what's happening in this country as a crisis. That's that rot that we're always talking about. Uh, 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 here on the show. That's not just, uh, you know, speechifying. I actually think it's really objectively true, given all these different issues that, that are happening around the same time. And so we see then the importance, as we always say, of political education, of uh, organizing itself. And I just always like to remind people of what Kwame Ture used to say is that, you know, capitalism doesn't just seek to uh, exploit your labor. It also seeks to confound your thinking. So it's actually crucially important from the standpoint of the rule ruling class that people have this uh, uh, narrow, um, frankly, slave-like uh, way of thinking about themselves, the United States and the world, because it's that kind of loyalty to this ruling class narrative that makes it just a little easier for that class element to stay in place and to keep the masses of folks uh, disempowered. You know what I mean? So even this media that's freely available to us and that is constantly being thrown at us, even though it may be free, I think we have to see it for what it is, which is ideological warfare. 
Absolutely. And this is why, you know, we always talk about organization and struggle, the the need for us to get organized so we can struggle within organizations with these ideas that admittedly not everybody understands because it's designed that way. The system is designed for us not to see behind the curtain that there even is a curtain. So there's a lot of literally deep programming that we have to do with a lot of the American public, but this is not something that can be done, uh, you know, just individually. It has to be done uh, in a principle, organized manner, because there has to be an alternative given. Once you snatch back the curtain, Sean, and expose capitalism and impend the related imperialism for what it is, terrifies people, absolutely should. But then they're asking, well, what do we do? And it's in that organization that we should provide people with the answer to what do we do. We believe it's socialism. So that's our job. And it continues to be even more as things progress or descend in this country, (laughs) as it were. Yeah, totally. And to call it deprogramming, I think, is appropriate, appropriate because we absolutely have been programmed from our earliest memory through the media, through popular media, through educational institutions. We're talking about an all out assault on the consciousness of poor, working and depressed people. And, you know, Karl Marx tells us that the dominant ideology of any society is that of its ruling class. And so it seems to me that if we bring about a situation where the working people who make the world run actually rule the world. Well, this, I think, uh, not only necessitates this kind of uh, undoing and corrective of these uh, ruling class ideologies, but that shift in thinking and study has to be connected to real struggle. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Joe Loria, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.